0: Morning Bethel, let's read our text for this morning, Isaiah 59, and you can turn to page 618 in the Pew Bible. Um, If you don't have a Bible, you can grab the one in the pew in front of you and find our text there. We've been studying Isaiah here for a while, Um, we've taken some breaks here and there, but we are nearing the end, and we're going to look at chapter 59 this morning, and so Once you get there, if you wouldn't mind, please join me in standing in honor of God's word as I read and follow along with me, and then we'll pray. Isaiah 59. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue mutters wickedness. No one enters suit justly. No one goes to law honestly. They rely on empty pleas. They speak lies. They conceive mischief and give birth to iniquity. They hatch adder's eggs. They weave the spider's web. He who eats their eggs dies. And from one that is crushed, a viper is hatched. Their webs will not serve as clothing. Men will not cover themselves with what they make. Their works are works of iniquity, and deeds of violence are in their hands. Their feet run to evil, and they are swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Desolation and destruction are in their highways. The way of peace they do not know, and there is no justice in their paths." They have made their roads crooked. No one who treads on them knows peace. Therefore, justice is far from us, and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light, and behold, darkness, and for brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope for the wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon as in the twilight. Among those in full vigor, we are like dead men, We all growl like bears. We moan and moan like doves. We hope for justice, but there is none. For salvation, but it is far from us. For our transgressions are multiplied before you, and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us, and we know our iniquities. Transgressing and denying the Lord and turning back from following our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart lying words, "'Justice is turned back, and righteousness stands far away. "'For truth has stumbled in the public squares, "'and uprightness cannot enter. "'Truth is lacking, and he who departs from evil "'makes himself a prey. "'The Lord saw it, and it displeased him "'that there was no justice. "'He saw that there was no man, "'and wondered that there was no one to intercede. "'Then his own arm brought him salvation.' And his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, so will he repay wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies. To the coastlands he will render repayment. So they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun." For he will come like a rushing stream which the wind of the Lord drives, and a redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord, my spirit that is upon you, and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. This is God's word. You may be seated. All right, so I'm actually oftentimes with the Isaiah study, I've given a little bit of context because we're diving in here if you're visiting or new or whatever, um, you know, give a little bit of context because it's hard to parachute in into such a big book so late in the game. Um, but I think this, this chapter will um, stand on its own, and we're not going to take any time really to, to focus on context. I want you to just think with me here as we get started. If, if you've been around Bethel for a while or even for a little while, long while, little while, I wonder if you've noticed that uh, we preach the gospel here every week. And I don't just mean from here. It happens in all kinds of different ways from the youngest ages to the oldest ages. And I guess I'm wondering if any of you ever check out when you start hearing the gospel again. Do you ever do that on a Sunday morning? Does it ever annoy you, the same message over and over again? Like children... Do you ever, I mean, many of you growing up in Christian homes, you come to to church on Wednesday night, Sunday morning, and you hear the gospel over and over again. Do you ever just kind of roll your eyes? And "Eh, I know that. Teenagers, you know, here we have the gospel project. (laughs) That's the curriculum, you know, all the way through, teenagers included. There's a class for adults called the gospel project. And so we're always talking about the gospel. Teenagers, do you ever hear it over and over again and kind of like, like, tell me something I don't already know? Adults, does this ever happen in your minds, in your hearts? Like, you know, familiarity can breed contempt, and it can also breed indifference if it doesn't go all the way to contempt. So do you ever think that way? I mean... Come on, like most of the people in here are Christians, I'm sure. So why do you keep doing this every week? Is it just in case there's a visitor that doesn't believe the gospel? Is that why you do this? Like, couldn't we get on to something deeper, hit on something we don't already know? Well, let me just give a brief explanation. I know not all of you are like, yeah, I hate that. You know, (laughs) Many of you love the fact that we keep reminding ourselves of the gospel week in and week out. But sometimes that can crop up. I've even seen it in my own heart in the past. So let me just give a brief little explanation of why. It's because the gospel is the power of God for salvation for all who believe, but it's also how we're strengthened as Christians. It's not something we leave behind. We're saved by the gospel and we are kept and strengthened by the gospel. And the reason I'm doing this this morning is because Isaiah 59 is a clear rehearsal of the gospel, even in the Old Testament. It's like Romans in the Old Testament. (laughs) And so I sure hope that because of that, you don't ever check out. In fact, I I said Romans in the Old Testament. I want you to see how this is normal in the Bible. This is the worldview of the Bible. So just turn with me for a a few moments here briefly to the book of Romans, and I want you to see how normal this is, that we ought to be doing it this way, (laughs) doing church this way. So look at Romans 1. Right off the bat, one one. Paul, servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy Scriptures concerning his Son. So the gospel is all about Jesus. Look at verse seven. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, he's writing to the Christians in Rome. They're already saved. Grace to you, peace from our God. From God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then verse 8, First I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. Exemplary, exemplary believers, they, they believe the gospel. So f- verse 9, For God is my witness whom so I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking he really wants to get to Rome to preach to them. Look at verse 11, For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. How's he going to do that? Look at verse 13 in the middle. I've often intended to come to you in order that I may reap some harvest among you. Verse 15 I am eager to preach the gospel to you, to you, Christians in Rome, and non Christians too. But he wants to preach the gospel to the Christians in Rome. And he's not ashamed of that gospel because it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So he wants people to be saved, but also to be strengthened by the gospel. Look at how the book ends. Flip to Romans 16. The concluding doxology at the end there, verse 25. Now, to him who is able to strengthen you, that's the same word back in chapter 1 that he just mentioned, I want to come to you to strengthen you. Now, to him who is able to strengthen you, according, how's, how's the strengthening happening? according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. That's how we get strong as Christians. It's according to the gospel and by the preaching of Jesus Christ. And what happens is when the gospel is preached, when Jesus is preached, look at the end of verse 26. This is the point, that he's got this ministry according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith change lives that come by faith in Jesus. To the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. So they'll be strengthened, they'll be empowered to obey King Jesus by means of the gospel. It's the power of God to save and to strengthen. We grow by means of the gospel. So if you just think about it, these were Christians and Paul wrote to them and, and kind of rehearsed the gospel from A to Z. After he says the gospel is the power of God and the salvation for all who believe, then he says, for the wrath of God is revealed against mankind because they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Well, But he's talking to Christians. Why do they need to know that? He's rehearsing the gospel from every angle because the gospel is the power of God to save and transform. They need to be so fluent in the gospel. They need to just look at all of life through the lens of the gospel so that they are transformed and empowered to follow Jesus and live like Jesus in this broken, sinful world. So that's what this world most desperately needs, but it's what we all most desperately need. So if you just think about it, I mean, I would encourage you to look through the book of Romans and see how many applications are tied explicitly to the gospel. So right after that powerful nutshell in three twenty-one to 26, the very next verse is then then what becomes of our boasting? <laughs> so how, how often do we need to, to worry about pride? Every day. How are you going to combat pride? By the gospel. Because if you rehearse and remember the gospel, it obviously humbles us, exalts God. We can't save ourselves. He saves us. Then what becomes of our boasting? It's excluded. Or how about the application in Romans 8? I'm skipping a ton of application. What shall we say then to these things? (laughs) What's the these things? All these great gospel truths and promises. If God is for us, who can be against us? How practical is that? But it all is tied to the gospel. So do you ever deal with fear? Do you ever deal with how you respond to criticism or people not, you know, people persecuting you or whatever? Right after that, it says, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Reminding us of the, the grace of the gospel. Who will bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who's going to contem- condemn? So Satan can't wag his finger at you. You can resist him by the power of the gospel because he loves to just remind us of our guilt. Oh, you call, call yourself a Christian and paralyze us or people around us Chapter 12, chapter 15, we looked at it back in the uh, gospel culture series. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Application based on the gospel. We are saved and we are transformed and changed by the gospel from beginning to end. So just put you all on notice here, we're going to keep preaching the gospel every Sunday from every text, (laughs) like 9 a.m., 10.30, and I hope that's good news to you because literally we don't have anything better to say. It's what the Bible's all about. It's what all of human history is about. It's how we're saved. It's how we're strengthened, how we grow. It's how others will be saved. It's the main thing, and we want to keep the main thing the main thing. And again, like I said, we all need to become more and more fluent and experienced and conversant with the gospel. So let's go and hear the gospel again in Isaiah 59. First point. Confrontation, verses 1 to 8. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. And then he goes on to unpack what that, those iniquities, those sins look like, and it's ugly, personal and social this society is a mess so what's wrong with the world why isn't everything good 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 very good like it was in the beginning why don't we live happily ever after in this life why don't we experience the blessing of God like we'd like why is it that God can seem distant or silent what's the problem what's his problem like what isn't what have you done for me lately God we can sometimes have that attitude. Well, The whole point of this text is God's not the problem. Do <laughs> you see verse 1 there? It, it's not his issue. It's not that his hand's too short. It's not that his ears are dull. Oh, I can't hear you. We are the problem. Look at verse 2. But your iniquities, your sins, that's what's made the separation. That's why his face is hidden from you because he's holy and he can't look on sin. So we're the problem, and verse 2 is unpacked in verses 3 to 8. Our sin separates us from God. God is not the one who created the rift. So there's this well-known story of um, the Times in London, you know, decades ago. They sent out this inquiry to famous authors. You heard this one? Asking the question, what's wrong with the world today? I don't know, maybe this was back in 1950 or so, something like that, 40s, 50s. And apparently G.K. Chesterton responds, responded simply, Dear Sir, I am yours truly, G.K. Chesterton. What's wrong with this world? I am. But you know what? That's not so easy for us. Listen to uh, Barry Webb, an Old Testament scholar. He says, Repentance does not come easily to any of us. And it is the hardest of all for people who have become accustomed to using religion as a cover for their sin. When their prayers go unanswered, they find it easier to blame God than to take a long, hard look at themselves. So, Isaiah 59 is in the Bible for us to take a long, hard look. At ourselves. In fact, it's also why Isaiah 6 is in the book, and it's a key to the book. If you're familiar, Isaiah, he was the prophet. You know, he's supposed to have the the kind of clean lips to proclaim God's message to the people, but then Isaiah has an encounter with God, the holy God, the king of the universe, and he, in the face of that holiness, says woe is me i'm undone i'm a man of unclean lips and i live among a people of unclean lips he he sees who he really is he comes to terms with who he is and so the pattern that is established there at the beginning is what needs to happen for the whole nation and ultimately for the whole world we need to encounter the true god we need to see who he is in all of his holiness and glory And in light of that, we need to be honest with ourselves and come to terms with who we are. Woe is me. And then atonement comes to Isaiah, and then he's commissioned to be God's instrument. So the question is, is your sin real to you? Because if it's not, then you're going to go through life thinking that your greatest problems are outside of you. People, circumstances, and... Usually that leads us to be self-righteous and critical, always disappointed in people, even ultimately, whether we say it this explicitly or not, disappointed in God for not giving us more of what we deserve, not coming through for us more. What a raw deal I've gotten. I deserve better. But the Bible is unapologetic about confronting us and being honest with us, so that we can be honest with ourselves. We really are as bad as the Bible says we are. So Paul actually picks up on this language from this section and applies it to the whole human race. It's not just something that happened back in history in the ancient Near East. It applies to the whole human race in Romans 3. So let's just look at a few phrases here in verses 4 to 6 of Isaiah 59. Um, We can't unpack all of these you know, images, there's a lot of poetry here, lots of images that we could unpack, but just, let's just ponder a few phrases and and feel the weight of this description of sin, feel the weight of our sin. Verse 4, no one enters suit lawsuits justly, no one goes to law honestly, they rely on empty pleas, they speak lies, they conceive mischief and give birth to iniquity, they hatch adder's eggs. So eggs are supposed to you know, have all this promise of new life, or they can feed you. But if an adder's egg is hatched, you crack that sucker open and you're in trouble, okay? So this is not a good thing, dangerous potential here. They weave the spider's web. He who eats their eggs dies. And from one that is crushed, a viper is hatched. Their webs will not serve as clothing. Men will not cover themselves with what they make. So you see the focus on lying and weaving webs and probably doesn't take too much thought to see that those themes are related, right? Why do we lie? Why do you spin the truth sometimes? Why do I spin the truth sometimes? Why are we tempted to do that? I mean, we're being confronted here. Like, are are we going to be honest with ourselves? Why do we exaggerate? Why do we downplay? Why do we blame shift? Why do we rationalize? Why do we justify? Not to mention gossip and slander. What are we doing when we lie? We're taking matters into our own hands for our own selfish good, for our self-protection, for our self-promotion, right? Like the line from the famous poem by Sir Walter Scott, Oh, what a tangled web we weave when first we practice to deceive. So if you weren't here last week, I'm, I'm sorry, I need to reference last week. Hopefully this will make sense if you weren't here. But God created this world to be like this wonderfully woven fabric of relationships for the sake of universal human flourishing. In the beginning, everything was good, good, very good. Universal flourishing, wholeness, delight. That is the true, full meaning of the word, the Hebrew word shalom, peace. Like this beautiful, strong fabric of relationships that supports everyone and everything is in harmony and has fullness and joy. And so sin is like knifing that fabric. It's like vandalism. Um, Cornelius Plantiga uses that phrase, the vandalism of shalom. It's the knifing of the fabric. And where the fabric is torn and frayed, people fall through. People get hurt, and we see it all around us, like the fight that broke out downtown last night. So this is the effect of sin. Physical, in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. That's a result of the knifing of the fabric. Psychological, Adam and Eve, they ate, and they immediately experienced fear and shame and guilt, and they wanted to hide. social effects. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. You'll desire to manipulate him and he'll throw his weight around. What else is new under the sun? I mean, every marriage that has trouble is, that's where it all began, in the garden. Domineering men, manipulative women, Cain and Abel social dynamics, We knife the fabric at the fall, and we've been tearing and fraying at the fabric ever since. And yet, here's what happens. Separated from God, cut away from this this weaver of the fabric of human flourishing, what ends up happening? We we feel alone, we feel naked, we feel exposed, and we aren't comfortable in our own skin because we know we're guilty. We can't stand scrutiny from God or others. The reason why we sometimes turn on the music as soon as we wake up in the morning and we don't like to be alone is because we can't look God in the eye. And we often can't look one another in the eye. So we attempt to weave our own security blanket. We're after flourishing, we're after peace and safety. And what we end up doing is we fabricate, we weave a web of lies. We weave a web for our own self protection and self promotion. We try to cover our tracks. It never works. It's as easy as just tearing away the spider's web. And, you know, even if we get away with those lies in this life, God knows. And so the gospel is, we talked about this last week, but it's here again, only Jesus can reweave the fabric of our lives and our relationships and world. He plunges himself like like this needle with this infinitely valuable thread and he reweaves our brokenness plowing the resources of heaven into our spiritual poverty and brokenness by his grace we are healed our broken lives begin to become whole again he bore our sin to carry away the serrated edge of sin away from us he suffered to heal the sufferers he became poor to enrich us he died naked cursed on a tree in order to bear away our guilt and shame so all those fig leaves of our own making our religious duties even. We can use those as cover. Our attempts at self-justification, self-righteousness, they're like the emperor's new clothes. You guys know that story? So Isaiah in chapter 59 is like the little child at the end of that story that cries out, but he hasn't got any clothes. So when the mirror of the word is held up and you and I, we see ourselves for who we are. How do we respond? Let John answer that, how we ought to respond. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, hiding, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, reweaving of the fabric of shalom, and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us, covers us, and cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins in the light, wide open, honest with God in ourselves, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we have... So. Have we, let me turn around and ask a question, have we, will we continue to walk in the light? I mean, that can be painful, exposing, but it's the only place where true freedom and covering the blood of Jesus and shalom, peace with God and others can be found. So when this happens, when you begin to get real with God, honest with God, the pronouns shift. Did you notice the pronoun shifting in Isaiah 59? In verses 4 to 8, it was They. They, 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 they. In verses 9 to 13, it shifts to we and our because people are getting real. They're starting to be honest with their sin. Look at the confession in verses 9 to 13. Therefore, justice is far from us, and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light, and behold, darkness for brightness, and we walk in gloom. We grope for the wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon. We're like dead men. We growl like bears, moan and moan. We hope for justice. There is none for salvation, but it's far from us. Why? We're owning it here. For our transgressions are multiplied before you, and our sins testify against us. It's not just they anymore, it's not out there. It's me. What's, what's wrong with the world? I am. We are. For our transgressions are with us, and we know our iniquities, transgressing and denying the Lord and turning back from following our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart lying words. Do you know what this is called, this section? This is called lament, communal lament. This is people getting real with God about their sin and owning it. It's like a communal version of Psalm 51 where David confessed his sin. In fact, there's an echo of Psalm 51 here. In Psalm 51.3, David says, my sin is always before me. And that's exactly what it says here in verse 12. Our transgressions are multiplied before you and our sins testify against us. Our transgressions are with us. We know our iniquities. It's always before us. Listen again to Barry Webb. He says, the good thing about weeping, communal lament, is that it means that we've given up Pretending. Pretending that things are all right and that we have the resources to deal with them. It means we have come to an end of self-justification and self-trust. We have faced the fact that deliverance, if it is to come at all, must come from outside ourselves. So God confronts us to call us to repentance. He wants us to get real with him, to confess our sins. He doesn't do it just to stick it to us. He never wants us to come to terms with our guilt and shame just to shame us as an end in itself. No, it's because blessed are those who mourn over their sin, for they shall be comforted. So look at point three now, redemption and covenant. Look at the the promise and the good news that comes once we get real with our sin. Verse 14, justice is turned back, righteousness stands afar off. For truth has stumbled in the public squares. That sounds pretty contemporary, doesn't it? And uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. Yeah, you can get eaten alive following Jesus. But the whole point is here in this flow of thought, there's none righteous, no, not one. All mouths are stopped before God the judge. Total depravity, total inability. Now what? What? Middle of verse 15, the Lord saw it and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man, nobody to intercede, nobody to save, and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. This is the armor of God. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak And he dealt with our enemies at the cross, and he will deal with his enemies when he returns. But the first coming, he comes as redeemer. Look at verse 20. And a redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from transgression. And as for me, God speaking, this is my covenant with them. Who's the them? Those who turn from transgression. You see it? This is my covenant with them, my spirit that is upon you. Who's that? That's his agent of redemption. That's Jesus ultimately. The spirit is on the son, the suffering servant. My words that I put in your mouth shall not depart out of, out of your mouth, out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. This Redeemer will come and he will establish this covenant with us. So, big picture again, God is not the problem. Verse 1, we're the problem. Verses 2 to 8. But the good news is that God made our problem His problem. His hand is not shortened that it cannot save, as ugly as verses 2 to 8 are. His ear is not dull that it cannot hear us cry out in our plight. He does not flatter us, but He loves us. His new covenant with us is Jesus. Jesus is the new covenant. He makes it. He is the mercy seat. It's his blood that makes, us po- makes it possible for us to have peace with God, to enter his presence and not be just obliterated, burned up. So that's why the Father sent the Son. That's why Jesus willingly came to to redeem us, to cover us with his blood. We sung of it. Those songs are so appropriate this morning. To give us real peace with God, make us peacemakers with others instead of spin doctors. He makes us gospel weavers to bring that peace, that freeing grace, the light of the gospel to others. So all those fig leaves, the tangled webs that we weave, He tears them off and he leaves us naked and exposed, but he does that so he can cover us with robes of righteousness. So the gospel is out of the web and into the robe. It's a good summary of the gospel here in Isaiah 59. So speaking of summaries, I want to just close with an illustration from C.S. Lewis, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, okay? And then we're going to prepare to participate in the Lord's table. So we have sung about the gospel. We have heard the gospel. We are going to feed on the gospel, this tangible demonstration of the body and blood broken and spilled for us. But before we do this closing summary here, so Voyage of the Dawn Treader, our, my, our copy of Chronicles of Narnia is fallen Apart, um, wonderful series of, of books by C.S. Lewis. So in the Voyage of the Dawn Treader, there's, there's this boy named Eustace, okay? And he is a terrible boy. I mean, talk about character development. You just want to punch him in the mouth, okay? He is incorrigible. He thinks everyone else is the problem. He's selfish and self-righteous, and he's a complainer, and he's annoying. And he ends up on this wild journey with some others, and he hates being there. And they stop off on what seems like a deserted island. And in order to avoid the work of setting up camp, he wanders off, and he again ends up getting lost, and he finds a dying dragon that's guarding this incredible treasure outside of this cave, the treasure's in the cave, but the dragon's dying outside the cave, and he gets, um, the dragon ends up dying. And so he's like, oh, I'm filthy rich, you know? And he puts on this golden band on his arm among the treasure, and he falls asleep on the treasure, and he, he wakes up and eventually realizes that he has turned into a dragon. And that that golden band, the size of a boy's arm, is now cutting into his huge dragon leg. And it hurts. He's miserable. And through the course of time, he comes to terms with how miserable of a boy he is. He finally sees himself for who he is. He's beastly. And then Aslan visits him, Christ figure, the lion, Christ figure in the Chronicles of Narnia. And Aslan leads Eustace, Dragon Eustace to this beautiful garden where there's this deep well in the middle. And Eustace looks longingly at this water and he knows it can soothe his aching legs. So here's the section I want to read. But the lion told me, I must undress first. I was just going to say that I couldn't undress because I hadn't any clothes on when I suddenly thought that dragons are snaky sort of things and snakes can cast their, can cast their skins. Oh, of course, thought I. That's what the lion means. So I started scratching myself, and my scales be- began coming off all over the place. And then I scratched a little deeper, and instead of just scales coming off here and there, my whole skin started peeling off beautifully, like it does after an illness or, if- or as if I was a banana. In a minute or two, I just stepped out of it. I could see it lying there beside me, looking rather nasty. It was a most lovely feeling, so I started to go down into the well for my bath. But just as I was going to put my feet into the water, I looked down and saw that they were all hard and rough and wrinkled and scaly just as they had been before. Oh, that's all right, said I. It only means I had another smaller suit on underneath the first one, and I'll have to get out of it too. So I scratched and tore again, and this underskin peeled off beautifully, and out I stepped and left it lying beside the other one and went down to the well for my bath. Well, exactly the same thing happened again. And I thought to myself, Oh dear, how, however many skins have I got to take off? Then the lion said, You will have to let me undress you. I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you, but I was pretty nearly desperate now, so I just lay flat on my back to let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I'd done it myself the other three times, only they hadn't hurt. And there it was, lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly-looking than the others had been. And there I was, as smooth and soft as a peeled switch. It's a stick. Um, And smaller than I had been. Then he caught hold of me. I didn't like that much, for I was very tender underneath now that I had no skin on and threw me into the water. It smarted like anything, but only for a moment. After that, it became perfectly delicious. And as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that all the pain had gone from my arm, and then I saw why. I turned into a boy again. After a bit, the lion took me out and dressed me in new clothes. And so he's talking with Edmund, and Edmund says, I think you've seen Aslan. Aslan, said Eustace. I've heard that name mentioned several times since we joined the Dawn Treader, and I felt, I don't know what, I I hated it. But I was hating everything then. And by the way, I'd like to apologize. I'm afraid I've been rather beastly. And then Lewis comments, It would be nice and fairly true to say that from that time forth, Eustace was a different boy. To be strictly accurate, he began to be a different boy. He had relapses. There were still many days when he could be very tiresome, but most of those I shall not notice, the cure had begun. So we're saved by the gospel. Only Jesus can make us new. And we are being made new only by the power of the gospel. And one day, all things Will be made new. So the gospel is everything. Let's never get over it. Let's never assume it. Let's never move beyond it. Let's keep studying it and believing it and sharing it and preaching it until all things are made new. Let's pray. Oh God. what what good news this is. What amazing grace this is. Please, Lord, please don't let us be dulled to its glory and sweetness by exposure, repeated, repeated exposure. But instead, cause it to keep sinking down, down, down to the core of who we are. The cure has begun, but we need it. We continue to need the the medicine, the vitamins, the food of the word, of the gospel, of your grace, so that we can become the people you want us to be, so that we can mediate your grace and truth and freedom to others as well. So as we come to the table, would you please feed us again on the grace and truth of the gospel and strengthen us with it. We pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.